Well, our service order is a little different yet again this week. The choir, it was such a treat, Dan and the choir, thank you so much for leading us in worship. And this morning's text, the Benedictus, the prophecy of Zechariah, the son of the father of John the Baptist, the choir will be singing, it's been put to music, and for offertory after the message, or hopefully it'll have even greater impact as we understand it, will take place after the message. So that's, that's the alteration to our order of worship. Let me uh, just set things up here. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, I don't know if any of you are, are fans of classical music, but frequently in classical music, there'll be an overture at the beginning of of an extended piece that sets up the major themes and movements of the piece itself. In an overture frequently are all of the major melodies, the major um, notes that will be struck in what follows. Musicals will often follow that same format with with an overture at the beginning summing up all of the memorable melodies. In many ways, Luke's gospel, the first two chapters, focusing on the birth narratives of both Jesus and John the Baptist, serve that way. And in most particular, the songs that are found there. We've already looked at two of the songs. We looked first at the the poetic utterance of Elizabeth as Mary visits her, praising her for trusting in God. Well, that's one of the major themes, the blessedness, verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. One of the major themes of Luke's gospel is, is, is echoing out through the pages is that blessedness for those who believe what is spoken to them by God. And of course, Luke is, is most interested immediately in his, his immediate audience of Theophilus, that Theophilus would receive the blessing of hearing and believing. And then we saw Mary's Um, utterance, her song of praise, what is called the Magnificat, taken from the first word in the Latin Vulgate of that passage, her soul magnifying God for his mercy and his deliverance. And again, in, in Luke's gospel, this becomes a lens to view the book through, that God is a merciful God. God is a God of the underdog. God is the God of the poor and the afflicted. Jesus, again and again and again in this gospel, will be going to those who are supposedly outside, tax collectors, publicans, lepers. And, and Mary celebrates God's mercy. He celebrates how he is the one who lifts up the humble and casts down the pride, proud. And then last week, we, we saw the events of the actual birth of John the Baptist, and now that chapter one closes, and, and this John the Baptist portion of this opening section, the first two chapters, ends with Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit, praising and prophesying. We have another one of these songs. And so in Zechariah's prophecy, we will get another lens with which, another, another major theme of the book As we're coming to Luke's gospel, how should we look to, how should we view Jesus? How should we view John the Baptist? Zechariah will give us a framework with which to do that. Let's let's begin by reading our text this morning, Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The wonderful, marvelous passage. I want you to consider, if you were struck mute, if you were struck deaf and mute, as it appears Zechariah is, for over nine months, you might be itching to speak when you finally are able to. What might you say? What do you think the first thing off your lips would be? I think it's remarkable that this priest, righteous priest, as, as the text calls him early in chapter one, the last words off his lips previously were words of doubting. Look at 118. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So the last words off this priest's lips were words of doubt, words of unbelief. How fitting is it that we read here the very first words off of his opened mouth, our praise to God. Last week we saw John made mention of it and then didn't immediately go to the praise. Look back in the account of the birth of John the Baptist, the, the relatives, after being chagrined by the, the answer that Elizabeth gives, that his name will be John, and there's no one named John in their family, they turn to the father, and he, he calls for a, a writing board, and he wrote in verse 63... His name is John. Elizabeth, his name will be John. Zechariah, it's settled. It's a done deal. John is his name. And immediately his mouth was opened and loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Immediately his tongue's loosed. Immediately his mouth's opened. Immediately blessing comes off. And we don't get to see what that is. Immediately we go to the result, the effect this has on the neighbors, on the community. But now... In these last verses of chapter one, we now get to see this blessing. And it's important to note, not just as he blessing God, but just as first John the Baptist was said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then Elizabeth, when the baby leaped in, his, in her womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke, we are explicitly told here in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So we got to pause for a moment and just talk about that. What, what Zechariah is saying is not his own personal opinion. 
This is the this inspired word of God, but, but sometimes in the gospels, people will say things that are not true. I mean, there are people who don't believe. There are people who curse God. What they're saying is not true. Inerrancy just tells us that Luke's gospel will accurately and inerrantly record what was said. But now, within the, the framework of the narrative, we're told explicitly that what Zechariah is about to say is a result of him being filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore his divine prophecy. So we've got to stop for a moment and just talk about prophecy for a second. We tend to think of prophecy purely as predictive. But if you look at Zechariah's prophecy, the first half of it isn't predictive at all. In fact, prophecy really biblically just means to, to expound, to, to foretell truth, to speak truth. Prophecy can just be to bless God as Zechariah begins. Now, you'll notice in the second part, Zechariah does start to look forward. Prophecy certainly can involve predictive elements. But that's, that's not the center of prophecy. Prophecy is to foretell truth. There's a sense, a sense in which, by virtue of standing here and expounding on God's word, I am fulfilling some sort of prophetic function to the degree that you speak truth to your neighbor. You are fulfilling some sort of prophetic function. We are all, after all, priests of God. So Zechariah is filled with the Spirit, and point one, Zechariah's prophetic praise. Now you'll notice the text breaks into two chunks. The first portion is dominated by third person pronouns. He's speaking of God as a he and a him. And we speak in the past tense, what God has done. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed all past tense, all third person. He did these things. It follows a standard biblical pattern of a call to bless God and then reasons to bless God. But then you'll notice clearly in verse 76, there's a shift from third person, he, to second person, you, and from past tense to future tense. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go. So that's, that's the big division a past tense celebrating what God has done and a future tense celebrating what John the Baptist and Jesus will do. So we'll look at that in in these two points. First, Zechariah's prophetic praise. Zechariah's prophetic praise. And Zechariah's gonna give two main reasons why the Lord God should be blessed. The first, bless the Lord who has saved his people. Bless the Lord who has saved his people. In verse, right there in verse 68 and 69, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so he's got two, two main themes here of, of how God has saved his people. First, he has visited and redeemed his people. Now that word visit is, is a Old Testament loaded word. God does a lot of visiting in the Old Testament. Sometimes God's visitings are not pleasant. He can visit the iniquities of the parents on the children. He can visit in judgment. He can visit in all sorts of ways you wouldn't want to be visited. But when you combine the notion of visit with redeem, one major thread strikes out. Listen to this. When Joseph is getting old and ready to die, he prophesies to his brothers and says, Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis 50, 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
God will visit you. The Exodus, which is what I think is in view, the primary Old Testament event of salvation where God delivers a people from slavery and captivity, mightily provides a way of escape, and enters into a covenant with them at Sinai. That picture, which is the dominant Old Testament picture of salvation, we, we celebrate the cross in the same way that we again and again and again go back to the cross and celebrate the cross. Israel again and again and again went back to the Exodus. That was their major primary salvation event. God will visit, and he redeemed his people. And the people understand this. In Exodus chapter four, as Moses returns to them, the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why should we bless God? He's a savior. He saved his people. When did he do that? When he's visited them. Now God's been visiting his people throughout history, but the primary place God visited and redeemed was when he visited them in Egypt and brought them out of slavery. He redeemed his people. He visited and redeemed his people. Now, ultimately, this is pointing to and setting up, because what's going to happen in the first half, we're going to look at these themes of salvation. And then in the second half of Zechariah's prophecy, he's going to point to how Jesus and the forerunner, John the Baptist, will be accomplishing the ultimate, the final salvation. And so just as Exodus is a picture of, of this salvation, Christ will bring the reality. He will be the sacrificial lamb so that the angel of death passes over. He will be the one who provides the path of escape. He will be the one who enters into a covenant with us. He will deliver and save us from slavery. God has visited and redeemed his people. And second, he has raised up a Davidic horn of salvation. We sit in verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, the concept of a horn is a picture of strength. Uh, a bull, its horns are its strength. It gores its enemies. And, and again and again in the Bible, this notion of a horn, and even warriors putting horns on their helmets, picture of strength and of power and of might. The, the picture is he has raised up a powerful, a mighty salvation or savior in the house of his servant David. And of course, this is again drawing upon biblical themes, biblical Old Testament themes. God promised to Abraham a descendant, and then he promises to David a descendant, and then Psalm 2 brings them together. The Messiah will be David's son. So Zechariah and any Israelite listening to him would understand you're, you're talking about the Messiah, you're talking about the Davidic heir. God has raised up a mighty horn of salvation, a mighty powerful savior from David's house. This is only one possible person. Zechariah is as as rejoicing as he is in the birth of his son. He's an old man. Never thought he'd hold his own newborn babe in his arms. He's he's holding this child. He's going to speak to this child in a minute. He's ultimately rejoicing not in his child, but in the one to whom his child is the forerunner. This, this, is a, this is an exultant prophecy primarily about Jesus. John's in here, but he's in here in so much as he points to, prepares for Jesus. This is a, a messianic prophecy. The powerful savior from the house of David. You can listen to Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I'll take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, the strength of my salvation, my stronghold, my stronghold. Or again in Jeremiah 
23, verses 5 to 6, this messianic prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I'll raise up a branch for David. I'll raise up a mighty savior. And what what Zechariah is saying is, whereas the first praise really truly looks back, he's still using past tense verbs, but now he's doing something the prophets do with frequency. He's speaking in the past tense about events that have yet to occur. Um, Biblical writers refer to this as a prophetic past. And filled with the spirit, Zechariah is speaking of these things as though they've certainly been accomplished because in God's mind, in God's purposes and his plan and with his sovereignty, if God has purposed to do it, if God has said he will do it, it is as good as done. It's how Paul can speak in Romans 8 about those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. You and I are not glorified yet, yet Paul can speak of it with such certainty, it's in the past tense. He has raised up a mighty savior. Well, really, we're only at the beginning of that. The mighty savior, the mighty horn of salvation, the savior of David's line is is a small embryo or zygote in, in Mary's womb at this time. And yet Zechariah rejoices in the salvation that God has raised up. It is sure, it is certain. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Then he moves on from specifically this, this first point for praise for God who saves, b- blessing God, to, to, to bless the Lord, point B, who has remembered his covenant. And the transition here, the transition of thought is, is that line, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouths of his prophets from of old. The, the first broad statement, he has redeemed and visited, he has raised up a savior, is now he's showing it's in accordance with the prophets. This is all in keeping with, with what has been said previously. And again, Luke's point in emphasizing this is to show Theophilus that these accounts, these, these events that may seem so strange and hard to believe, the recording of miracles, a virgin birth, a barren birth, they're all in keeping with a, with a line of biblical prophecy. Notice, by the way, that it's the singular mouth of the holy prophets, not the mouths of the prophets. What what Zechariah is emphasizing, and I'll, I'll read here from a commentary, the single reference to the mouth of the prophets does two things. It first portrays them as secondary agents in the presentation of God's promise. Secondly, it presents their message as unified, as a whole. They speak for God with one mouth about the Messiah. The emphasis here is the unity and the totality of the prophetic message and predictions about Christ. It's not that Jesus fulfills one or two or three predictions. Jesus is where it's all heading. According to Romans, in him, all the promises of God are yes. And that the Bible has a unified message and a unified voice. And from of old, from the very beginning to where Zechariah is standing, throughout the entire Old Testament, there's a unified voice. God is doing the things he has promised again and again without stuttering, in clarity, and in a unified voice. And and this baby in his arms and this baby that he knows about in a peasant woman's womb is the fulfillment and the culmination of those promises. So he blesses the Lord who has remembered 
his covenant. And that really becomes the theme here is God's faithfulness, God's oath-keeping. As he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Three points here. First, he has delivered his people. He has delivered his people. That's the first promise that he points to of, the, of what the prophets had promised, that, he sh- that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, what's interesting, and I gotta make this point now, is Zechariah is gonna sum up the totality of the Messianic blessings. The totality of the Messianic blessings. As we saw when we were studying through Zechariah, Zechariah doesn't distinguish clearly between the events of the first coming of Jesus and the events of the second coming of Jesus. Zechariah, in other words, is saying, Messiah will come, and when he comes, and because he comes, these things will take place. And so so Zechariah can talk about people's sins being forgiven and the Messiah being pierced. And Zechariah can also speak without any clear division of time to a kingdom being set up and a a glorious battle being won and enemies being vanquished. And, And that's what Zechariah is doing here. Zechariah is grabbing the totality of the messianic promises. Now what we'll notice in the second half is he focuses on a subset. He focuses on a subset. But right now, we're looking at the whole promises. What did he speak by the mouths of the prophets? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. Now, we don't just want to spiritualize this. There are absolute promises. If you go back where this is headed, ultimately, is God's covenant with Abraham. Listen to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised to defeat their enemies. Those who would harm you, those who would curse you, I will curse. In the very Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise for the defeat of of their enemies. Now it's true, Christ in his first coming defeated the enemy of sin and the devil. We are freed spiritually. But as much as there is an immediate spiritual reality, Zechariah, I think, has in view, ultimately, the, the consolation and restoration of Israel, as promised repeatedly in the Old Testament. And because the Messiah comes, those things will happen. We saw that in Zechariah. So first, he has delivered his people. Listen to Jeremiah 30, verse 8 and 9, speaking of, of what the Messiah will accomplish. It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him and they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. So there's, there's promises connected with the messianic Davidic king of deliverance from enemies. And again, in the prophetic past, speaking with the certainty that it has been accomplished even though as of yet it has not in our experience of time and space been accomplished. He has delivered his people from their enemies. The fullness ultimately will be brought about by Christ. Second, and here's really the central point, he has kept his oath to Abraham. He has kept his oath to Abraham. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers 
and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And then he goes on to unpack some more of that. Understand that one of the central points that Zechariah is rejoicing in and what I want you to take comfort in, what God wants you to take comfort in, is God's fidelity and faithfulness. God keeps his word. And I imagine that everyone here has experienced the bitter pain of dealing with someone who has not kept their word, who's dealt with broken promises. People swearing up and down that they will do such and such, that they will be there, that they will, that they will cover a need, and they don't. And God has acted out of his love, and God has acted out of his mercy, but all that mercy and all that love is tied to promises that he has made. This is why the, the, the attempt to sort of just approach God apart from Scripture, apart from Christ, just hoping he'll be kind, just hoping he'll be merciful, is doomed to failure. God has tied his love and his mercy to his promises. And those promises are open to all. As we read from Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. I'll make you the father of many nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But here, the, the tying of this mercy is to promise God is faithful. This is why God wants us to be honest, why God wants us to keep our word. Because he is the ultimate promise keeper. He is the ultimate oath maker and keeper. God has kept his oath to Abraham. Turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. And again, I want you to picture this, that God's mercy and God's love is channeled, is directed. He has purposed it this way through his promises. It's not as though he's just sort of omnibenevolent in the sense of just doing kindness and good things to everyone apart from his promise and apart from his word, but they're joined together. Even as Israel in Egypt is crying out. If you, if you read through Exodus, we've just read about how Pharaoh commanded that the male babies be thrown in the Nile. And I just want you to imagine the grief, the sorrow, the anguish, and probably the number of dead parents who attempted to stop such a thing. And Israel cries out to God. These events foreshadowing the, the things we'll read about in Luke that Herod did as well. Look at verse 23 of, of Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Oh, he has compassion. And his compassion, his mercy is tied with the covenant he made. And when God appears to stay there, when God appears to Moses at the burning bush, he repeats those same things. The Lord said in verse seven, I've surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And he keeps his covenant in his oath to Abram. He keeps his covenant. If, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're trusting God's faithfulness, you're trusting in his covenant keeping. And every time we're reminded of that, we should rejoice because that's our hope. How do you know that God won't be fickle, receive you today and cast you out tomorrow? Because he keeps his word. He keeps his promises. How do you know that the God who was faithful and kind and bore with your weakness and shepherded you will not next week 
cast you out. Because God keeps his word. God keeps his word, and Zechariah celebrates this as the center of his praise for God. God has done all these things precisely because God promised to do these things. And starting with the promise to Abraham, and then building upon that with a covenant with David, and the other promises and the other prophets, God keeps his word. Thirdly, and he repeats the notion of being delivered from enemies. You'll see that. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So we've already looked at he's delivered his people, he's kept his oath. Third, he has delivered them that they might serve him. He has delivered that they might serve. And understand that. God sent Jesus to die for you. God sent Jesus to the cross to deliver you, to deliver me, so that we might serve him to free us to serve him. It wasn't to do as we please, but that we might serve him. Going back to the Exodus, when God sent Moses to, eat, to Pharaoh and historically said, you know, let my people go. Okay, I won't do that again, I promise. Um, why? What's the reason given? Exodus seven sixteen. the Lord said, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. Why did God demand that Pharaoh release the Israelites? So that they could serve God. And when Israel finally is delivered and freed from slavery in Egypt, where does God take them straightway to? To Mount Sinai. And what does he say? Even before the law, even before the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20, what does God say? Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now the connection here is that the word translated in the Greek here as serve really has priestly service in view. Sacred service. God, and it's again linking back to this Exodus motif. God redeemed them. He delivered them. He rose up a deliverer in Moses back there in Exodus. And he delivered them so that they could serve him in a a priestly sense. And you say, okay, that's great. They're going to be a nation of priests. What about me? 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, writing to the church. You, me, us, if you're a Christian, our chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God, God saved us so that we could serve him. God saved us so that we could do his will. Or... As Ephesians 2.10 puts it, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Sometimes we can present the gospel simply as you want to not go to hell and would you like to go to heaven? I think a fuller, more faithful presentation would be, do you want to be freed from sin's penalty and not go to hell? Would you like to be freed from sin's power? So instead of serving sin, you can serve God. And would you like to be freed from sin's presence so that you can go to heaven and be with him sinless and spotless? I, I think that's a more faithful understanding of the biblical presentation. We, we cannot go to hell. We can, this life now can be freed from sin's power. We can, we can grow in holiness. We can grow in serving God. And ultimately, we can go be with him. 
Here Zechariah makes that link explicitly clear. God has saved and delivered so that his people might serve him. He has delivered them that might serve him. Let's, let's shift now to the second half of the prophecy. Zechariah's prophetic prediction. Prophetic prediction. First we saw his prophetic praise. Now his prophetic prediction. Now, and I just, I think, I think of Greg with his, his newborn son, Greg Rolak. And just picture this, you're not an old man, but this old man, I'm mainly picturing because you had that delay. You wanted to take him home, and, and Greg's, Greg and Allison's son was in the um, NICU for, for a couple of days. So I can just imagine the joy when they finally got to hold him in their arms, finally got to take him home. Here's this old man, never expected to have a child. He's looking at the child. He's speaking to the child and you. He's talking to his baby boy, eight days old. <laughs> and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. The father, filled with the spirit, prophesying, speaking directly to his eight-day-old child. What we see is that John is a prophet of the Most High God, which is a comparison John, one of the things Luke's intent to show us is that John is an important figure. John has an important role to play, and Jesus is so much greater. Luke again and again, Jesus is so much greater. John is a prophet of the Most High. Turn back to chapter one, a little earlier in chapter 1 to when Gabriel appeared to Mary, because we're supposed to already know this. Verse 32. <laughs> John is a prophet of the Most High God. Jesus, verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. So you've got the prophet of the Most High and the Son of the Most High. Both serving important functions for God, one so much more supremely greater than the other. John is a prophet of the Most High. And you can sort of write in, there's no blank, but right there next to the verses, that the fundamental emphasis here of Luke is he is to announce he is to proclaim, he is to preach. John, John, as prophet of the Most High, is going to be announcing something. And we look at his ministry, predictive here, verse 78. No, sorry, verse 76 and 77. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Two things. And really, he's stating one thing two ways. First, What's John's prophetic ministry? To prepare the way for the Lord. To prepare the way for the Lord. And that just comes right out of Malachi and the prediction of God sending this messenger. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's to prepare the way for the son. And this, again, goes back to royal language. I mean, even today when our, our president goes somewhere, there's always an advanced team getting things ready, setting things up. And, and in Zechariah's day, the same was true. If a great dignitary, a great official, a great king was going somewhere, there would be an advanced party sent ahead to make sure it was clear, to make sure the road didn't have washed out bridges, to make sure there weren't highwaymen and robbers. And in that same picture, this messianic king, the son of David, it's only fitting for God to send someone ahead to prepare the way. Except the preparations are fundamentally not for the conditions of the physical conditions, but the hearts of the people. And we've already seen that. He prepares the way, Gabriel tells Zechariah, by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. 
And here, point two, and this is really how he's going to prepare the way. This isn't like two functions. He's to prepare the way and do this other thing. He prepares the way by, really, to give knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist is going to go ahead preparing the way for the Lord by giving a knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. Now, we'll get there in a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, but just turn quickly to, to, to Luke chapter 3. We get a glimpse of this. Fundamentally, John's message is one of forgiveness of sins. That is how people are prepared for Jesus. Look at Luke 3. 3. And he went into all the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's fundamental message was repent you can be forgiven. And in that way, he prepared people for Jesus. Uh, this is important because we, we live in a culture where to tell people they're sinners, to tell people they need to repent, to tell people that they're unacceptable to God does not feel very loving. And what we wrestle with is we want people to love Jesus, don't we? We want people to love God, don't we? How, how, what prepares people for Jesus? What prepares people for Jesus is, is John the Baptist's message. That's how the people's hearts return to the Father. So that's how people are prepared for Christ. And we understand this, the preparation for receiving the necessary precondition for believing in Jesus as Savior is to know you need saving. You're not going to turn to a Savior you don't think you need. He prepares God's people by giving them knowledge of forgiveness of sins. So John is the prophet of the Most High. He's announcing. He's announcing and he is... He is giving a knowledge. Notice also that just as Zechariah previously grabbed the entire messianic bag of goodies, as it were, the, the salvation, the deliverance, but the physical deliverance, here, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, there is no longer any mention of the national deliverance. There's no longer any mention of their enemies being cast down. This is actually an issue that John the Baptist himself will struggle over when he's arrested and thrown into prison. Because in many places in the Old Testament, the, the coming of Messiah, first and second, are lumped together, there is this expectation that when Messiah comes, he will set all things right. When Messiah comes, he will, he will redeem Israel, and, and they will be taken out of captivity. When Messiah comes, there'll be peace in the land, they'll take their swords and turn them to plowshares. Yes, when Messiah comes also, according to Isaiah 53, he will suffer and die and pay for our sins, but they're looking for this as one package deal, and so one of the things John the Baptist apparently was expecting was that Rome would be overthrown. He was not expecting to go to jail. And you remember that in jail, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus saying, are you, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Now Zechariah here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes no such mistake. He, he parses out from this big messianic promises what is specifically going to be done immediately by his son and Jesus Christ, and that is a mission of forgiveness of sins. That's what Christ came to do in his first coming. He came to die on the cross for our sins. Yes, he will come again to make everything right. Yes, he will come again to set up a kingdom. Yes, he will come again to destroy his enemies. But Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, narrows the focus. John, my child, he says, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. You'll be go before the Lord to prepare his way to give a knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus, first and foremost, 
is not a political revolutionary. He's not first and foremost some social reformer. He's first and foremost a forgiver of sins, a sacrifice for sins. Again and again, this is what the Jews stumbled over in dealing with Jesus. They were all interested in the Savior who delivered them from Rome. They were not interested in the Savior to deliver them from sin because so many of them believed themselves to not need a Savior from sin. So now let's look to Jesus and, and the focus now. Verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Now, if John's purpose is to announce, you can write next to verse 78, 79, there's no blank. Jesus will be the one who accomplishes. John announces salvation and forgiveness of sins, and Jesus accomplishes salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, that links back verse to verse 72. God, Zechariah has already addressed God's mercy and he links it to that covenant to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore. So in reminding us that in sending Christ, he's been merciful, he's reminding us that he's kept his promise to Abraham. And that's why the blanks here are this one of whom he's speaking is Abraham's seed and David's son. Abraham's seed and David's son. Because remember, God's mercy is linked and channeled and directed by his promises. His promises of a mighty saving horn for David. His promises of a descendant, of a seed to Abraham. And then there's this wonderful expression, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The title of this morning's message is The Dawning of Salvation. That's just a wonderful picture. In the conception, the recent conception of of embryo Jesus in Mary's tummy, the conception of God-made flesh, the sun has begun to rise. Salvation is dawning. What, what was hinted at and predicted in the Old Testament now is finally happening. This, this phrase, the sun shall visit you, is another reference again to Malachi. Now let's read it briefly. In verse, chapter 4, verse 2. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Zechariah gets that the events tied with the, with the forerunner coming are the same events that tie with God promising that the sunrise, sunrise of righteousness and salvation shall rise. It's, it's begun First, we saw Abraham, this, this Messiah, Jesus, is Abraham's seed and David's son. Second, he's the visiting light giver. He's the visiting light giver. And that really means he's the savior. Notice that tie-in of the word visit. We saw that earlier. God visited his people in Egypt with the result of what? Deliverance, salvation, freedom. God is now visiting his people again. With what result? Salvation, freedom, deliverance. And it's rising. The sun is rising. This also ties into Isaiah 9, verse 2. You know these passages. If you've listened to um, Handel's Messiah, you know the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. 
Or turn, turn to Isaiah 42. Turn to Isaiah 42. Zechariah's prophecy is just dripping with scripture. It's just marvelous. As he's tying together these messianic threads, rejoicing in the salvation that is just beginning, that is just beginning to come to fruition. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. And I put my spirit upon him. He's talking about the Messiah who's to come. He will not cry aloud or... No, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, verse 2, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to all the people in it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my game. My glory I will not give to another or place my praise upon carved idols." The Messiah will be the one whom God's soul delights in, and in him he will be a light to the nations, and the people who are sitting in deep darkness and the prisoners shall be released. This is the visiting light giver, the Savior. Finally, what will the Savior do? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Guides us in the way of peace. Now what does that mean? It does not mean peaceable conduct, first and foremost. There's a sense in which the gospel will yield peaceable conduct. But this, this is a, a Jewish man. And what does shalom mean? In Israel, what does peace mean? First and foremost, it means wholeness and peace with God. This is the language of Paul in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. This, this Messiah, this light giver, this rising sun will shine light upon those in darkness and then lead those formerly blinded by darkness people towards in the path of peace, towards peace with God. So if the light giver focuses on Christ as Savior, this leading us in peace is focusing on our salvation. And what Zechariah is looking at is this, this baby boy in Mary's womb is the one who will both shine light upon us, reveal our state, give us hope and light, and then lead us towards peace with God. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to give us peace. He is the light giver. I've said this before, but the real danger is that we don't realize we dwell in darkness. We don't realize that we're blind, we're deaf, we're slaves, we're shackled. And Jesus has come to set us free. Salvation has dawned. And John the Baptist preached a message which the Pharisees found hard to hear. And he warned them to flee the wrath to come. But for those who've felt sin's conviction, for those of us who have recognized our weakness, our poverty, our slavery, there's light and there's hope in Jesus. God has kept his word. I'm going to call the uh, choir up. But as, as they come up, 
I just want to close in prayer. Lord God, you have kept your promise. You have kept the oath that you made to Abraham and to our fathers. Lord God, you have raised up, truly you have raised up a powerful and mighty Savior from the house of David. Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. Truly you have remembered the mercy that you promised. And Lord, not only has the the sun of our salvation dawned, but it has risen. And our Christ has accomplished for us that which we could not accomplish for ourselves. He has redeemed us from the penalty of the law, the penalty of sin. He has led us to peace with you. And Lord, we echo Zechariah's statement. Lord, you are to be blessed. You are to be praised. You are a marvelous God. In Jesus' name, amen.